Chapter 18 Philosophy and the Power of Faith Towards the Final Union The success of Middle Platonists and Neoplatonists was due to their adaptation of a more erudite and impersonal Platonism to contemporary aspirations for immortality and a blessed afterlife. Plato directed the philosophical vision towards the intelligible form of the good and the beautiful. The Middle Platonists faithfully followed Plato's advice to imitate God as far as it is possible for a soul and to become God. This assimilation to God may be understood as following or imitating in all respects the divine patterns paradigmata, thereby restoring the perfect image of God both externally and internally. The Stoics understood it as life according to nature, but the more esoteric interpretation related to the Egyptian mysteries is concerned with actual union. Early Christianity inherited the ancient talos of Thurgy, though assimilation to God may be explained in many different ways, not always meaning making one closer to God. For Clement of Alexandria, assimilation means deification. Quote, the word of God, Tau Theo, speaks having become man in order that you may learn from man how man may become God. End quote. It is not clear whether theos here means a stage within God himself or an angelic rank. In the biblical tradition, the sons of God may be called angels and Quote, Moses calls the angels gods, end quote, according to Julian. Perhaps Clement meant that the Gnostic draws nearer to God than the closest possible proximity, though this transcending never ends. A long quote here. The Gnostic souls transcending by the magnificence of their contemplation, the citizenship of every holy rank, in accordance with which ranks the blessed dwellings of gods, having been delimited, are allotted. Having been counted as holy among the holies, arriving at better and better places, no longer cleaving to divine contemplation in mirrors or through mirrors, but hailing the most manifest possible and absolutely unmixed sight, this is the grasping contemplation, cataleptici theoria, of the pure in heart. End quote. The Middle Platonist Alcinous argues that Plato made our good the knowledge and contemplation of the first good, which can be called good and the first intellect. In order to comprehend such statements, we must remember that prior to Plotinus, 
No clear distinction had been established yet between the divine intellect or the noetic realm constituted by the triad of being, life, intelligence, and the ineffable one as the first good which transcends intellect and being altogether. The aim, Talos, of philosophy for the middle Platonist consists in assimilation to God as far as possible. If the principal activity of God, in this case equated with the Aristotelian first intellect, is displayed in contemplating himself, then the human talos should be to contemplate God. Alcanus says, The soul contemplating the divine, and the intellections of the divine, can be designated as an excellent condition. Such a condition of the soul is called wisdom, phrenesis. In fact, one should think of assimilation to the divine as nothing else. The fundamental feature of the Middle Platonic metaphysics is the fusion of the Platonic conception of ideas and the Aristotelian conception of intellect, nous. In their transcendent aspect, the ideas were considered as thoughts of God and in the immanent aspect, they were regarded as forms of beings. The Middle Platonists recovered the Platonic dimension of incorporeality and transcendence, neglected by the New Academy, and posited as the supreme end of man, the imitation of God, or assimilation to the divine and to the incorporeal. Numenius, the Neo-Pythagorean predecessor of Plotinus, upheld the doctrine close to Philosophia Perinus. He tried to show the harmony and inner concord of the Pythagorean philosophy of Plato with various initiations and doctrines, shared by the Brahmins, the Jews, the Magi and the Egyptians. The Pythagorean Platonism, expounded by Numenius and Ammonius Saccus, a charismatic purveyor of Numenian Neo-Pythagoreanism, according to J. Dillon, exercised the most powerful influence over Plotinus and later Platonists. In the writings of the Alexandrian philosopher Hierocles, Ammonius emerges as having accomplished the main Numenian task, insufficiently conducted much earlier by Antiochus of Ascalon, namely, the purification and restoration of Platonism betrayed by Plato's successors in the academy. Hierocles follows Iamblichus in regarding true philosophy as a revelation, Plato presents the earthly domain as a sort of avataric epiphany. Being the purifier of philosophy, Ammonius is instructed by the divine. According to Hierocles, the Pythagorean golden verses, described as an educational introduction, Pydoitiki Stoichiosis, written by those who had already ascended the divine way, contain the general and basic principles of all philosophy. 
by establishing the cultivation of virtues and contemplation of truth, they put the student of philosophy on the road to his final goal, namely, assimilation to God and return to the archetypal abode. Therefore, repentance is the beginning of philosophy, which itself is divided into practical philosophy, that is, human virtue, and contemplative philosophy, celebrated under the name of divine virtue. In order to restore spiritual insight proper to the primordial golden race, to conduct the perfect and happy life full of knowledge, and to ascend to divine principles, not only various sciences such as geometry and mathematics are needed, but hieratic purifications of the soul's pneumatic vehicle, Okima, are also required. As Hierocles concludes alluding to the Phaedrus myth, quote, The end of the Pythagorean philosophy is that we may become all over wings to soar aloft to the divine good. End quote. This Pythagorean and Platonic philosophy is based on oral and written instructions, commandments and exhortations, Paranjalmata, provided by the so-called daemonic men who belong to the Hermike Seira, the hermetic chain of transmission which is primarily vertical and only secondarily horizontal. This philosophy also is based on an elaborated symbolical exegesis, that is, on the metaphysical interpretation of oracles and certain inspired ancient texts such as the dialogues of the divine Plato and the poems of Homer, Hesiod and Orpheus. From the 2nd century AD, the theological and metaphysical oracle, oracles, or dogmas from Assyria, Tar, Assyria, Patria, Dogmata, were accepted as direct utterances and revelations of gods and angels. These oracles, combined with other sacred traditions, provided sufficient ground for the re-established unity of philosophy and religion. For H.D. Safri, who regarded philosophy as a mental activity which the Greeks had always laboured to render rational, this turn to the supra-rational authorities, mythical evidences, and hieratic arts proves to be a clear decline. Quote, Plotinus alone appears to us as a heroic exception to this general crazy infatuation, end quote. He sadly concludes. However, the Pythagoreans, Neoplatonists and Chaldeans themselves regarded theurgy and other hieratic practices not as the regrettable corruption of rational philosophy, but as the desired culmination of the entire philosophical program. The acceptance of divine revelations and myths in no way presupposes the rejection of mind, of independent scientific research and logic. Therefore, Platonism presented itself as the supreme defender of Hellenic rationality. 
the characteristic of a philosopher and of any intelligent person was felt to be his ability to explain in logical terms what he believed and he does not indulge in vulgar and irrational abuse of natural things which are, after all, the reflections of eternal archetypes and noetic paradigms. Despite the confidence of H.D. Safri and other scholars who tried to dissociate philosophy, converted into purely mental activity from any kind of revelation and initiation, the philosophy of Plotinus is not incompatible with hieratic traditions. The Plotinian ascent, anagoge, as a contemplative process which brings the soul to greater and greater degrees of noetic purification, follows the model of the mysteries and of the cosmogonical scenarios by imitating the rhythms of the main divine right, that of creative irradiation and return to the source. Since cosmogony itself is the ritual act of the demiurge who directs and orders the overflowing productive power of the one, both theurgy and philosophy at their proper levels constitute the soul's mimesis of the cosmogonical rite conducted in the cosmos itself understood as the temple of the eternal gods. The ascending soul, drunk with nectar, and filled with love for the good, participates in intellect's erotic, supra-intellectual aspiration for the good as pure light. Plotinus says, quote, But the soul sees by a kind of confusing and annulling of the intellect which abides within it. But rather its intellect sees first, and the vision comes also to it, and the two become one. Kai ta duo hen genitai. But the good is spread out over them and fitted into the union of both playing upon them and uniting the two, it rests upon them and gives them a blessed perception and vision. End quote. This grasp of the ultimate good is achieved by the soul, carried on the epistrophic wave of the divine noose itself through the prime part of intellect or that element in noose which is not noose, but is akin to the one, this element is the same as the flame of intellect or flower of intellect, Anthaus Nu, of the Chaldean oracles. The most mysterious part of the intellect, which is akin to the fiery essence of the Father. Sometimes the language of Chaldean theology is strikingly close to the language of Plotinus's negative theology and dialectic. And when they show certain differences in metaphysical detail, in style of expression and spiritual method, they nonetheless agree regarding the aim of anagoge, which is the same. Mystical vision, illumination, immortality, and union with the eternal divine principles, or the one, which should be described not only as an object of love, but also as the lover and the love itself. 
active union with divine principles is accomplished not without intellect and rational abilities, but at the same time this union transcends imagination, discursive thought and even intellect itself. The strength of human intelligence suffices for gaining the vision of ideas in their noetic union of plurality, but not of their source, the supreme and ineffable God. Therefore, immaterial theurgy, regarded as the graceful interference of the henads themselves, at the summit of philosophical ascent, provides a supra-rational and supra-intellectual union. The different kinds of theurgy operate on different levels of reality. Material theurgy employs material objects because the corporeal world is a field in which the soul's faculties are developed and tested. Therefore theurgy reveals the sacramental virtues and qualities of phenomena which serve as the unspeakable symbols and ineffable names of the gods. As G. Shaw pointed out, quote, the soul could no more realize its salvation without embracing matter than the demiurge could have created the cosmos without the formless receptacle. End quote. The aporetic approach to philosophy based on reasoned arguments and logic of the lower stages of ascent is not incompatible with the noetic insights and mystical visions of the higher stages. Though our language and thought are unable to reach the one's ineffable light, philosophy ultimately attains the truth and is able to assimilate us to the divine realm. A. H. Armstrong, the great Platinian scholar, says, quote, An important reason why there is so little about prayer in the Aeneids of Plotinus is that so much of what he writes simply is prayer understood according to its admirable catechism definition as, quote, lifting up the head and mind to God, end quote, end, end quote. Plotinus distinguishes three classes of men. One, those who do not attempt to rise above the physical realm. Two, those who try but cannot and three, those who succeed and arrive at the divine realm, just as a man arrives in his well-governed land after a long journey. Here, Odysseus is a symbol of the highest class of humanity, those philosophers and mystics who have reached their spiritual home. Being faithful to Plato's definition, both Plotinus and Porphyry regard philosophy essentially as a preparation for death and escaping from the physical body. But whereas Plato describes the process of doing good to one's beloved as working on a statue, agalma tecteanate, Plotinus exhorts the searcher for the good to go on working at his own statue, tecteanon to son agalma. Porphyry also proclaims the necessity of returning to the real self, since the real self for Plotinus and Porphyry is the undescending intellect, both as the highest element in us and as a component of the hypostasis of intellect, the goal of life is to live according to intellect, following the Aristotelian maxim, 
Porphyry says, quote, To the extent to which you approach yourself, and yet you are present to yourself and inseparable from yourself, you approach being as well. End quote. He indicates four elements derived from Chaldean sources as significant and indispensable for a friend of God, that is, faith, truth, love, and hope. As Porphyry argues, it is necessary to trust that the only salvation, soteria, is conversion to God, he pros ton theon epistrophe, and knowing the truth about him. Through toil and steadfastness, philosophy accomplishes the blessed journey to heaven following the example of the Dioscuri, Heracles, Asclepius, and all other children of the gods. Both Neoplatonists and Hermetists maintain that the only really useful knowledge is that of the way of immortality. Though the idea that one may know God, common in Christian usage, is rare among Hellenic writers, for Iamblichus, liberation from fate occurs only through knowledge of the gods. Tau Theognosis Demister. This knowledge is sometimes equated to union with the gods and is viewed as the first road to happiness. In Neoplatonism, a spiritual master is described as the divine man, which may be regarded as a personification of divine intellect. Within the elaborated hierarchy of values, the agent of theoretic virtue, the soul which beholds nous within itself and is fulfilled by it, is given the title God, and that of the paradigmatic virtue, the soul which is united with intellect, father of gods, according to Porphyry. Following another view, more suited to Iamblichaean and post-Iamblichaean Platonism, the possessor of philosophical virtue is called God, Theos, and the possessor of theurgical virtue, the liberated soul, which is united to the one or resembles it, is called Father of Gods. Theurgical or hieratic virtue is proper to the henetic element of the soul, which transcends intellect and being. Each soul, likened to a fruit-producing plant by Iamblichus, must worship the gods in a manner appropriate to its nature and level of understanding. There are various modes, tropoi, both of descent and ascent. Therefore philosophy, not love of talking but love of wisdom, leads upwards by using all necessary means. For philosophy indeed is the science of living perfectly, according to Iamblichus. The true philosophical life, philosophicus bios, is also the life of loving, eroticos bios. For philosophy is the love of wisdom, and its goal is the knowledge of all divine things, according to Proclus. Being, as it were, the benefactor of souls and bringing salvation to mankind, philosophy leads the soul upward by the power of truth to the unparticipated divine intellect and eternal ideas. 
Platonic dialectic serves this function, namely, to unify the whole realm of human reasoning and proceed from human reason to the divine noose itself. Since the vision of the ideas, archetypes, divine names, is among the most important achievements in the upward journey, the soul of the philosopher is rewarded by that life of contemplation known as the Cronian life, Kronios Bios. Standing at the top of heaven, on the back of the Egyptian goddess Nut, the soul contemplates the true being beyond. Philosophy and the power of truth cannot lead further, but only theorgaki techni and faith. In this respect, which concerns the relationship between philosophy and faith, consisting of being aware of metaphysical depths of reality, F. Shuon asserts as follows, quote, One can spend a whole lifetime speculating on the supersensorial and the transcendent, but all that matters is the leap into the void, which is the fixation of spirit and soul in an unthinkable dimension of the real. This leap, which cuts short and completes in itself the endless chain of formulations, depends on a direct understanding and on a grace. Not on having reached a certain phase in the unfolding of the doctrine, for this unfolding, we repeat, has logically no end. This leap into the void we can call faith. It is the negation of this reality that is the source of all philosophy of the type that may be described as art for art's sake, and of all thought that believes it can attain to an absolute contact with reality by means of analyses, syntheses, arrangements, filtrations, and polishings. End quote. While discussing the power of faith, pistis, Proclus argues in the same vein, quote, For the theologians call the contact and union with the one faith. End quote. Ke he pros auto sunefe kai henosis hupo ton theologon pistis pokaleotai. Paradoxically, this faith may be defined as illegitimate belief, nofi doxa, being like the Buddhist upaya, a kind of soteriological mirage. Since like is always known by like, the theologians can know the one only by an illegitimate intuition, nothos nous. The soul is united with the good, which is unknowable and unspeakable, through the flower of the intellect, anthos to nu, and the flower of our whole soul, pases hemon tes sukis anthos. The final unity is called the firebrand of the soul, sukis persos. Proclus argues that Plato and the theologians before Plato were accustomed to praise a divine madness, mania, which transcends intellect. Quote, For the soul must become one in order to see the one, or rather, in order not to see the one. 
for if it saw the one it would do so by intuition, and not by that which is above intuition. Videns enem intellectuali videbit et non supra intellectum. And it would know a particular unitary thing, but not the one itself. L.J. Rosen distinguishes three stages of this madness. One, contact, sunafi. Two, approach, empalasis. And three, union, henosis. The final union may be described as becoming fire, and the road to it as the fiery road leading to the father. Those terms reflect not only Chaldean, but also Egyptian images, such as the entourage of flame and the solar bark of Ra. Proclus says, quote, Now that we are coming close to the cause of all things, there must be not only a hush of the opinion, a hush of the imagination, and a cessation of all emotions that prevent us from rising upward to the One, but also a stillness in the air, and a stillness of all else. For let all things lead us by their calmness of their power to the presence of the ineffable, and standing there, raised above all that which has being, we kneel to it as to the rising sun, blinded in our eyes. End quote. 